an excerpt from a treatise concerning the religious affections about signs of being in a state of grace. No such signs are to be expected that shall be sufficient to enable those saints certainly to discern their own good state, who are very low in grace, or are such as have much departed from God, and are fallen into a dead, carnal, and unchristian frame. It is not agreeable to God's design that such should know their good state, nor is it desirable that they should have assurance, but on the contrary it is every way best that they should not. We have reason to bless God that he has made no provision that such should certainly know the state that they are in any other way than by first coming out of their ill frame and backslidden condition. Indeed, it is not properly through the defect of the signs given in the word of God that every saint living, whether strong or weak, and those who are in a bad condition, as well as others, cannot certainly know their good estate by them. For the rules in themselves are certain and infallible, and every saint has or has had those things in himself which are sure evidences of grace, for every, even the least, act of grace is so. But the difficulty comes through his defect, to whom the signs are given. Welcome to the Bud Zone Podcast. I'm Bud, your host. The Bud Zone Podcast is for, from, and by saints, our buds in the faith. To edify one another in the faith and to encourage one another to love and good works. We discuss the world, we discuss the church, we discuss the faith, we discuss truth, and we do it with the mind of Christ. Thank you for joining us. Greetings and welcome to this week's episode of the Bud Zone Podcast. The goal here on the Bud Zone is to profile the ongoing work of the Lord in building his church, edifying his saints, and glorifying his name. This week, I am particularly honored to be joined for a second time, but for a different sort of conversation, with the Les Lanfear. Les, thank you, brother, for taking time to join me. Thank you so much for having me. Back so soon. So soon, yeah. It was just a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, we discussed the, uh, at the time, the funding effort for your movie with David Lovey and Tim Cannon, Cessationist. And yep. at, at this point, we can announce that it is fully funded. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, fully funded. Today is the last day of the Kickstarter. So once uh, at midnight tonight, uh, it'll be it'll be over. We're, we're above what we've asked for. People have been extremely generous, uh, including yourself and uh, uh, Andrew Rappaport. So uh, just super excited. Well, I, I am very excited to have been given the opportunity to, to participate and, and help promote it in a little way. The Lord's at work in this a very important project, so I'm, I'm excited to have been able to be involved in a little bit of it. Amen. I want to get to your, uh, your kind of ministry of film work that you've done, but before that, I, I want to ask you kind of a standard Bud Zone question that I ask most people, and that is simply, why are you 
less a Christian? How did how did this happen? Hmm. Um, well, so I grew up in in a pretty agnostic family, I guess you could say. Um, not that they were unbelievers; they just didn't really talk. My parents didn't talk much about religion, um, and we also. Well, I guess everybody's got a dysfunctional family, but but mine was uh, uh, definitely defined by a lot of dysfunction. Um, but my so my mom every once in a while she'd get on a kick and she would take pretty much just me to church every once in a while. And so she even now she would say that she has always sort of been a Christian, but she didn't really know much about it. And when I and I decided that I was an atheist at some point in high school, and I really got into uh, drugs, especially hallucinogenic drugs. That was my thing. So oh, I would wow. take, you know, all, all that sort of stuff and go on trips and, you know, develop philosophies about reality. And um, I, I had an especially uh, disturbing uh, uh, hallucinogenic experience uh, when I was right out of high school. And um, it was like pretty devastating. Like it, it was like, I kind of like reached the end of what I think the philosophy of the human mind can come to sort of thing. Um, it was just, just really about like, you know, why are we here? Must be obviously big bang is the only explanation for all these things. But um, you know, what about the origin of the universe? So it must be this sort of like eternal uh, contraction and explosion, right? Okay. People talk about that, uh, the, the rubber band theory that yeah. the big bang is the beginning, but what happened before the big bang? Well, it was the universe contracting to become that, the, the unity that, that would explode into the big bang. So whatever this rubber band theory was like, all right, that makes sense. And, uh, but then it was like finite matter, but with infinite time means that, uh, the explosions that would result in the universe over and over and over again uh, is made of finite matter. So that means that it must be, it must repeat eventually because there's only a certain amount of possibilities for finite matter to explode into. Yeah. So trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years later, this exact miserable experience that I'm living right now must repeat and not just repeat once, but repeat for eternity. So I'm in hell. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, I, I hated my life. I was absolutely miserable, depressed, and, it, I, and I was stuck in this forever. And, and I had to come to this realization forever, like over and over and over again. Like that's, and, and it literally like seeped in. I stopped doing drugs after that because I was like totally burnt out. But that worldview was, was seared into my mind. Like this is, the, this is what I believed about the world now. And that lasted for about two years, just like complete misery. And I hated everything and it was all meaningless at the end of the day. So, I mean, true that, atheism. yeah, that's, I mean, which leads necessarily to, to total nihilism. I mean, yeah. it's just total destruction and doom and gloom. And how do you get out of yeah. it? And, was now, were you, was, were you, well, I was going to say, was there anybody really sort of mentoring you in that? Or is this just all your own? thinking and reading and uh, i mean you you came to this or was there you know a mentor well, that was guiding so, you so, into that so this sort of this is kind of a philosophy that i've that i truly believe i just saw yesterday there was a a uh, trailer that netflix just released 
Um, I forgot what the title of the, the documentary was, but it was all about hallucinogenics. Um, and, you know, they're, they're really just pushing this idea that, yeah. you know, like all these depressed people and these people that are suicidal or, or uh, coming to the end of their life, terminal illnesses, um, they take ayahuasca or they take LSD and they go on this experience and it brings them to a place of peace and, and all this stuff. So I think this, this is really being pushed on the public and, and ultimately, um, I, I truly believe that hallucinogenic drugs have a message uh, instilled in them. Uh, it's it's not that everybody has a you know a random experience and you know you find your own truth based on blah blah blah. I really think at the end of the day you're driving towards a message and it's coming from a messenger and there's an intelligence that you're getting you're getting in contact with, but it is not who you think it is. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I really think there's a spiritual aspect to it, and especially with um, ayahuasca and you know some of these crazy things that people are doing now. Um, I hear that people have literally the exact same experiences. Um, they zoom through these tunnels and they're shot out into like this thing. And if you get over a certain hump then you go onto this other plane and you even see like the same sorts of beings that are like the trolls that hold the universe together and build it, what all this stuff. So, um, so I really, I truly think that if, if you do these drugs, uh, consistently or in the right frame of mind, you don't have to be shown anything. The drugs themselves show it to you. Do you? And yeah. in that, and you know, if you sort of believe in the power of them, then you think that's the truth because you can talk to other people and they're like, Oh yeah, I, you know, I, I feel the same way and I believe the same. And it's like, Oh yeah, we discovered the truth to reality. But the truth is that is the only answer Ultimately, like I was finding the only answers that somebody who really, really thought about the universe could come to if you are rejecting the Bible. Wow. It's the only other option, in my opinion. You know, all think, these atheists that, that believe in like that the that matter is is finite and, and time is also finite. Like, like, you know, you just don't want to answer the question of the origin of the universe. Like that's not you're not really thinking about it very hard. It's just you're just you're just saying I don't want to believe in God, but I also don't want to think too hard about the origin of the universe. You know, I, I don't know. Well, you you're trapped in a materialism that you can't think beyond necessarily. You can have these sort of altered consciousness experiences, I, and I agree with you. I think that you're seeing those things being pushed on society at large, particularly young people. But I also think that you're seeing this rise of transhumanism, and I think you're seeing yeah. the rise of you know, these meta verses, um, that is all intended to distract you from reality and let you, you be your own God effectively in, in these dimensions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like the, like the matrix and all that stuff, brain in a vat sort of thing. Yeah. Like these are the only, they're the only answers that can really make any sense if, if you think about it for more than five seconds, which most, most people don't want to think about it for more than five seconds. But if you do, then you have to have some kind of answer. And the answer is always, oh, there's, there's some layer above this layer. But, but that hallucinogenic thing really bothers me, especially for Christians, because I, I hear a lot of Christians even say, oh, yeah, these terminally ill people, and they, they give them these drugs, and then, they, then they're at peace. And I'm like, hold on a second. You don't realize what you're saying. If you can give a terminally ill unbeliever peace, on their way out of this life. And you think that's a good thing. Yeah. Peace outside of Christ. 
this artificial, you know, this other message that's giving them some kind of peace about their life so they can die with dignity and calmly and where and just go to hell. Like, yeah. you think that's a good thing? That is not a good thing. This is a lie from Satan that gives somebody false assurance and amen, false peace. Amen. Of, absolutely. Yeah, like, I read something uh, actually from Canada, which is apparently very rampant. Uh, up there, but an article is called "It's Made M A I D Medically Assisted um, uh, Induced Death." I think is yeah, is that yeah. right? And I'm yeah, reading this, Doctor Kavorkian in the '90s, right? Yeah, exactly. And you read the descriptions. The doctors are saying the oh, we, we put him in this peaceful state. We've never seen anybody, but you don't know. You, there's no way you can. I mean, first of all, you're putting them into an induced coma before you're you're ceasing their life. Uh, what yeah. by drugs no i absolutely agree with you that's uh what a tragedy um and yeah, yeah so, christians so, can't support this this is not a christian i mean you can't make this a you know a, a gospel coalition <laughs> agenda right. item we can't support this right yeah people think about it like it's just another kind of medicine that you know quells the the nerves or something but you're talking about someone's conscience you're talking about their their soul the part of them that you know should be contacted by god through the gospel through the through the holy spirit and you're, you're giving them some you're giving you don't give medicine to that part of a person because that's the only 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 god can reach that part of them yeah, so, yeah. anyway so you pursued that uh yeah the sort of despairing uh resolution to reality so yeah continue your story and so so then i moved in with a buddy uh, Penn State campus, uh, State College, Pennsylvania. I wasn't going to school, but I was drinking like I was a student there. Uh, and I was, uh, I was living with my, my buddy there. And one time we took a trip back home and we were coming back in this beat up, crappy green Jeep that he drove. And uh, I was so incredibly depressed. And I had like, I'd taken some pills or something that I like stole from, from someone out of a medicine cabinet and it was just got me really, it was like, you know, not, not anything crazy, but, um, so I was a little high, super depressed. And I, he could tell that I was kind of bummed out and he asked me what was wrong. And I just turned to him and all I could like sort of muster about what I was feeling was like, I just want to be a good person. So looking back on it, I just, I realized that I just, I really recognized how messed up and sinful and depraved and disgusting I was. And I just wanted to be, to be better. I just wanted to be, you know, morally was that's, that's the issue. And I just felt it weighing heavy on me at that time. And so my buddy who I grew up with, he was a Christian, but he sort of fell away and was doing like the college thing and experimentation, all that stuff. But then he had just recently um, got plugged back into the church, rediscovered the gospel. He pulled this, this Jeep over to the side of the road, pulled a Bible out of the back seat, and just started reading scripture to me. And he told me about this idea that I deserve to die because I am a bad person, because I am a sinner. But Jesus, who never sinned ever, uh, he died instead of me. He, he died the death that I'm supposed to die. And so I, I remember like we're sitting on the side of the road and I was like, oh, he died for my sins. Cause I'd heard that phrase a million times, yeah. Jesus died for your sins, but I never really, it just never made sense. Like I didn't really understand what they meant for it. He died for like as a substitute. As a and I was subst- like, yeah. oh, 
And I mean, you know, now I know what was happening in that moment, but the lights came on and, and like the rest of that drive there, I was just like, I felt like weird and different. And like my mind was racing and I couldn't quite, but I was just like, I, I believe this, you know? So then I got, uh, got back to my apartment and I read the book, the whole, the whole book of Matthew that night. Um, you're supposed to start with I John. Remember, Nobody ever told you that, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, I had no idea what I was doing. It gets, it's gets even worse, but, uh, uh, yeah. So I read the book of Matthew that night and then I remember laying in my bed, just staring at the ceiling and it was just, I was just overwhelmed. And the realization I was just kept saying, you're real. Like you're actually real. And it was, you know, my, my entire, everything about me was, was changed. The Lord immediately delivered me from, you know, I was addicted to cigarettes and, you know, binge drinking and all this stuff. And the Lord started to deliver me from all that stuff that I'd been trying to quit for years. Um, so, but I had no, you know, I had no, um, understanding of church or, and he didn't either. We were just both kind of had no idea what, what we were doing. Yeah. Um, but that's my, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the night I got saved. That is amazing. I mean, that really is, um, because that recognition that I want to be good means you yeah. recognize you're not. And that's, that's where it starts. You, you've got to recognize you're standing before, you know, a thrice holy God and that you have no hope in yourself. You know, the drugs weren't doing it. The binge drinking wasn't doing it. Your, your philosophy of reality wasn't taking you anywhere. That's, yeah. That is tremendous. And that's, and that's something that I think a lot of people need to remember. It's like shame is not something that we should be saving people from again, apart from Christ, like that I needed that, you know, I, I needed to know that I was dirty and filthy and, yeah. um, and wicked because that's, that's where the Lord saves us. When we, you have to have that recognition first and people like, they just so knee jerk want to like, especially as Christians, like I want to be loving and I want to comfort them and tell them they're not so bad. It's like, use that shame to drive them to the Christ. Don't exactly don't just quell their fears in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's what, and I, we won't go into it, but but one of the things that really concerns me about the contemporary church right now is its lack of emphasis on the law of God. You've got to have, yeah. if you don't have the law of God, you've got a truncated gospel, and the only place you can go is this this evolution of the contemporary evangelical gospel, which is Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, no, that's not the gospel. Um, it starts yeah. with your standing before God. It starts with the law. Uh, so that, that's amazing. Now, when we were talking, uh, on the previous episode with, uh, David and Tim and you, you were, we were discussing the cessationist movie, you made a comment that really intrigued me. You said that you moved you, you, one of your earliest exposures to, I guess, organized Christianity was IHOP international house of prayer. And yeah. now you're a Presbyterian less. So there's something that <laughs> yeah. happened. Can you tell me how you go from that, which we would not consider Orthodox Christianity to yeah. being now a reformed Presbyterian? Well, I think I, I, I think I started even worse off if that's possible. I'm not totally sure it is, <laughs> but um, when I was still in state college, my buddy, he bailed out of school. His parent, his grandparents made him move to Florida, uh, to Melbourne, Florida. And he basically, we just got on the phone. He's like, listen, man, as soon as I get an apartment, you get on a Greyhound bus and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll just get an apartment together and we'll, we'll figure this out. And so that was our plan. And he, he totally followed through on it. So praise God. Um, 
But while I was in uh, state college for a couple of months, every once in a while, I'd be like, I don't, I don't know, maybe I'll go to a church. I, but I had no clue what anything was. So there was this on, uh, on campus, there was this church, they called it the Dorito Church, because it was this big triangle building. And I had no idea what it was. I, I wouldn't have known what a denomination was anyways. But so I went in and I, I, I think I went in a couple of times, but the first time I went in, I remember they were reading the, or they were reciting the Lord's prayer. And I had just read the Lord's prayer and it was my first exposure of like, Oh, we're, we're saying this thing together that I'm familiar with out of scripture. And it was just, I don't know. It was just kind of a cool experience. Uh, and then years later I, I looked up the Dorito church and it turns out it's a Catholic church. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, it was whatever, I guess the Lord used it in some way to at least like give me some connection to like people, whatever. Well, that's um, how, how impressively distinct they made themselves to you though. Obviously you didn't even know you were in a Catholic church. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't have, they could, I could have become a Catholic cause I had no context for what I was even doing, but yeah. you know, the Lord spared me that. Um, so, so yeah, I moved to Florida and this buddy of mine, he was a musician and he ended up at this wild charismatic church that, that really liked his, his musical gifts. So, uh, he was like all in. So that's, I just went, went where he went and it was this, uh, <laughs> yeah, this insane charismatic thing, all women. Um, most of it wasn't even English, it was just speaking in tongues, pretty much the entire thing and people rolling on the ground, laughing, and they bring out a map and you pray over the United States. And it was just, uh, you know, lunacy, but it it was called, it was called treasure coast house of prayer. So it was a, it was a a house of prayer and you know, lots of words were brought to me. The, The Lord had a word for me. And this one experience, uh, the, 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 the main pastrix there, uh, she didn't like me very much or no, she, she liked me, but she wanted me to date someone that she knew. So she was trying to hook me up with this girl. Um, and I wasn't really into it. And I had my girlfriend who's not my wife. Um, she would come with me every once in a while. And I remember this, this one time they were laying hands on everybody and she walked up to my wife and she was going to slay her in the spirit or whatever. And she put her hand on her forehead. And again, she was trying to uh, keep her from, from me. She was trying to break us up because she wanted me to date this other girl. So she, as she's praying over my wife, she starts repeating, don't settle for less. Don't settle for less. Don't settle for less. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, wait a second. I see what Are you're you doing. doing what I think you're doing? <laughs> Just like subconsciously trying to <laughs> tell her to not date me anymore. So, That's pretty funny. Uh, so does your wife yeah, so go around was, does your wife go around now saying I settled for less? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Apparently she didn't pick up on it, but I, I very much did. I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. So yeah, we did that for a, a little while. And then it was I don't think there was anything about it that necessarily like that I recognized was wrong. It was just kind of crazy and nonsensical. And you know, I would I would weep there and I, I never got into this. I was baptized in that church. Um, they tr- they tried to make me speak in tongues yeah. uh, when I got baptized right afterwards. It was this big deal. And I I tried for like half a second. I was like, and they were like, hey, you'll work on it. Like they weren't very impressed with my speaking in tongues. Um, so, 
yeah, so that, that lasted for a little while and that church sort of fell apart. Um, and then we ended up, uh, after getting married where we got married at, uh, a church called Morningside, sort of non-denominational, maybe a little shallower than a Calvary chapel. Okay. Um, and then we, we moved to up to Calvary chapel and that was like, we were there for quite a while, had a couple of kids there and, uh, Calvary chapel was really the turning point. And that's true for a lot of people, apparently, because the, the contradiction of Calvary chapel is they really, really encourage you to read your own Bible and they have expository preaching and, um, and all this stuff. And, but they also claim that they're, they're between and Arminians, you know, neither one is right. And so they have the, the verses or they have the explanation of the five points of Calvinism. Then they have the explanation of the five points of Arminianism. And then they have a middle column. That's their position. And it turns out it's just a re a rewording of all the Arminian points, except for perseverance of the saints. Um, Cause they believe you can't lose your salvation. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a, yeah. It's a Calvary distinctive, which, doesn't really make any sense, but that's, that's where they're at. So that's where I was at when this big resurgence started happening. All these young people in Calvary Chapel um, started using this word Calvinism and it started becoming a buzzword in, in Calvary. And then, and then it became a bad word. Uh, the, the leadership decided this was unacceptable. They kicked this young group of people out that was sort of like, you know, trying to get all these people, all this commotion was happening. So they kicked them out. And then they made all the leadership sign a document that said that they don't believe in Calvinism. And uh, I had no idea what this stuff was. I just knew that it was a bad thing. And I loved Calvary Chapel. So I was against it. I'm against Calvinism. <laughs> so they, uh, somebody handed me uh, the DVD Amazing Grace uh, by, uh, oh, I forgot his name now. Uh, it, it's, it's online now. Yep, it's, yep. it's fantastic. It's got RC scroll in it and stuff. Um, it's the, the history and theology of Calvinism. Right. So I, you know, I'm like, all right, I'm going to defeat this thing. So let me learn about it. So I popped in the first DVD and it was explaining the history. And I started talking about, uh, Pelagianism. And that was like the sort of the starting point they want. So they're like, uh, Pelagius believes that men are born clean slates, tabula rasa. And basically I, I paused the DVD and I'm like, that's it tabula rasa so that's the that's the answer so i just decided i'd be a pelagian <laughs> because of this dvd yeah it's not so, getting better less man <laughs> yeah i'm not so i started teaching i i did a, a class at you know I was, I was a young adults uh teacher sometimes um and i taught i actually taught this whole message on tabula rasa and how we're born clean slates which and then the actual guy over me that Made sure, supposed to make sure that I was doing it the right, you know, teaching the right stuff. He applauded the whole thing. He thought it was great because I was fighting Calvinism, and well, that has to be done at any at any cost. Well, let me ask you, just to interrupt, when you were teaching this, were you able to twist any scripture, especially to support what you were teaching? I mean, would is there some place I mean, in scripture you'd go to yeah, make yeah. that argument? Free will offerings today okay. we will choose, you know, yeah, just okay, whatever. Uh, any verse that, that seemed to indicate some kind of free will is, I guess that's, that's all you need to do. Um, so yeah, so I, I taught and then, so that's when people who had some concept of what they were talking about started approaching me and being like, 
like, dude, you're, you're way off here. And they were also being influenced by Mark Driscoll and Paul Washer and these guys. So they started giving me those sermons. So, you know, it took, it was a Paul Washer sermon about, he was talking specifically about regeneration and it just, it, yeah, it cut me, cut me to the core uh, during one of my, you know, sessions of listening to him or whatever. And then I remember, cause I'd been talking about this for months, um, how awful Calvinism is. And then I remember going to my wife and saying, I think I'm a Calvinist. And she's like, Oh brother, like what is you know, more I of settled this for less. <laughs> so, so yeah, that, so I came to that realization and then, uh, pretty quickly got kicked out of Calvary chapel because I like a couple weeks later was teaching them about, uh, monergistic regeneration and, yeah. you know, uh, which was, it was very fun because I knew I wasn't supposed to be doing it and I knew I was about to get in trouble for it, but, but I was also so confident and I had this zeal for it. So it was a very, a very weird time. So they, uh, yeah, they asked me to leave pretty quickly after that. And then I ended up in a church in Stewart, Florida, uh, reformed Baptist church, sort of John MacArthur ish. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and their theology, I guess you could say not, not covenantal or anything. Um, with a actually kind of a celebrity pastor that nobody knows is is here in Florida, but it's for good reason because he's kind of um, problematic. I, I won't go into any detail, but uh, he, uh, yeah. So I I sort I sort of grew there. I would say a little bit. Um, ended up getting kicked out of that church because I I believed that God ordains everything that happens, including the sins that take place in the world. And this pastor, for whatever reason, he says he's taught A.W. Pink. He says he knows the sovereignty of God very well, blah, blah, blah. And, but for some reason, this idea offended him so much. And he said that I'm blaming God for my sin if I say that God ordains sin. And he says he even said that John Calvin was blaming God for his sin. I'm just like, oh my goodness. Uh, so you don't really understand this stuff. It's pretty basic sovereignty of God stuff. Um, so anyway, kicked out of that church. I was going to a, a sort of reformed church in Port St. Lucie where I live. And then in the evenings, I got invited to like a serious regulative Presbyterian church. So we go to this sort of like mega church mentality, uh, sort of okay preaching thing in the morning. And then in the evening I was going to, I mean, as conservative as you can get and there's maybe one instrument just to keep you on, on the melody of the song or whatever, but it's pretty, it's the voices of God's people. They had this whole philosophy about the way worship should be done. It's not that they had a low budget and couldn't afford the smoke machine. It's that they thought the smoke machine was actually a bad thing. Yeah. Um, and so I just, you know, seeing that contrast in the morning versus the evening on Sundays, uh, didn't take long I was just like, this is, this is so reverent. This is obviously biblical. And as I started to really understand the regulative principle, I'm like, clearly, like this, this is what God wants from us. So I wanted to join, but I was Baptist. And so I, uh, you know, told the pastor, I'm like, listen, you know, I got my family and everything. We want to join. And they were, they're such a serious reformed Presbyterian church that they went to the session and the session said, if he's unwilling to baptize his children, which would keep my pastor from doing his duty according to the church book of order, which says that he's responsible to baptize my children. 
and I know a lot of people, this is where I lose a lot of people because they feel like this is so unloving and a church should never, but that's what happened. And I, I truly believe they made the right decision. Uh, I think more PCA churches, more Presbyterian churches should stand by that. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. Um, but it made me face the baptism issue. Um, I, I'd studied it a lot. I had a very good argument. I was a, a covenantal Baptist, um, but now I had to study it on a personal level. Like it yeah. actually affected me um, because I can't join this church. You know, and a lot of people, that reasoning sounds to them like, oh, they pressured you and you changed because, well, sure. Yeah. The, the Lord used that pressure in a way to make me study it in a way that I otherwise wouldn't, I wouldn't have had an open mind to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they started giving me some resources and um, it was just, you know, there was another light bulb moment. Uh, reading Bavink. Bavink was talking about how, you know, if you get if you get saved, you automatically acknowledge that your your house belongs to God and your job belongs to God and your money belongs to God. How much more does your family belong to God as yeah. well? Do you really think these individual people are like just somehow neutral in this in this new conversion experience, you know? Um, so that was, that was a big moment for me. And then it was, you know, a few other big arguments from, from Calvin and others. Uh, so then, yeah, so then I was convinced and I got, uh, baptized my kids and, uh, I am very much a, uh, convinced. I love the Presbyterian church so much. I, I mourn for, uh, the Presbyterian church in a lot of ways, but I think, I think we're, we're, uh, on the right path currently, as far as I can tell. So but, yes, now let me ask you then, then how long between the crappy roadside Jeep experience to now, I mean, what kind of time are we talking about? Um, man, at least 10, 12, maybe 14, 14 years, maybe. Yeah. Wow. That's about right. That's, that's remarkable. I mean, I got saved when I was 19, so it's, it's about 20 years, uh, all together. But, uh, when I started, when I really started to like, my theology started to improve. I yeah. Would say. Yeah. Well, I tell you the, uh, the, the couple of things, the issue with the reformed Baptist guy that you, you didn't want to name, I understand that's fine. Um, that's a big, that's a big problem for people that are considering themselves reformed. They understand maybe doctrines of grace, but they run up against this wall of, well, what about sin? What about the fall? This, this seems Mm -hmm. like it's out of character for God. So it's like, you know, it's a hurdle that a lot of them, a lot of folks have difficulty getting over. The other thing I wanted to ask about is with the issue of, of baptism, uh, pedo baptism versus credo baptism. When you started investigating because you were motivated, you wanted wanted to be a member of this Presbyterian church. That was a limitation. How did you begin studying the issue of of baptizing infants of pedo baptism? Uh, I'm curious to hear how that developed for you. What what was it that drove you? Was it Bavink and sort of starting with the covenant, or was it? Well, was it? Yes, it was absolutely covenant. So my my pastor who. He's no longer my pastor now. We have a, a new one. He's moved on. He's actually moving to Hawaii uh, pretty soon, which is pretty cool. But um, he, so now when he, he's still a pastor in other places. And whenever he runs across a convinced Baptist who's stubborn, um, he sends them my way because he knows that I've got, I've got the arguments now. Um, and I got, I kind of have it down to a science really, but 
I was a, I was a convinced covenantal reformed Baptist. So right. there's a couple different, you know, people that know this stuff. There's a couple different brands. And t- typically I just break it down to sort of the MacArthur type Baptist. If you, if you're a Calvinist, cause there's also Arminian Baptists that who even knows how yeah. to deal with them. Yeah. Uh, you got to get Calvinism first, I think. Um, so you got the, the John MacArthur type. And really their argument is the scriptures don't say to baptize babies. End of discussion. Like that's, so it's talking to them is, is a little different. Well, they don't say but to give the, they don't say to give the, give women the Lord's supper either. So you can, sure. you can rebut yeah. that and, as well. Yeah. And the word Trinity is fine with them as well. You know, yeah. we, uh, but, but uh, there is, I think a more nuanced, uh, a more sophisticated uh, Baptist reform Baptist argument. And it's the origin of the reform Baptist movement, mm-hmm. which is 1689 federalism. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least covenantal Baptists. MacArthur is more of a dispensational uh, reformed or Calvinistic Baptist than there's covenantal. So as long as you hold to a covenant, then we have a starting place. And that's, that's where I was. I was covenantal. I believe that um, God was sort of uh, planting the seeds of the gospel in these previous covenants. Um, but we sort of wrap everything from Abraham all the way up to the Davidic covenant. We don't, we call pretty much all of that. Uh, the old covenant reference that because it's before Christ comes and then something drastically new happens in the new covenant where every member of this covenant is saved. Whereas that wasn't true in the old, it was a mixed covenant. And that's sort of the, the most important issue when it comes to pedo baptism. So that was my big argument. The, the defense that I was giving for my position was that the new covenant is perfect and pure. And if that's true, then the Reformed Baptists are right because you shouldn't baptize a baby if if you're not sure they're regenerated, or at least you don't have really good evidence that they are. Yeah, and that would be a profession of faith. That's how we would why well, we baptize them that way. So totally makes sense. Um, but if they're not right, and if the new covenant is mixed, then you have a whole new discussion to have because then who is in the new covenant? First of all, um, how are our children to be treated in light of the old testament and the data given to us in the new testament and then what is up with this whole practice of household baptisms that we see in the book of acts and later um Mm -hmm. paul talking about this being a pretty normative practice with the apostles why would god use the same concept of household baptism when we see in the old testament how loaded that concept of household was because it basically meant especially your children um, in, in the Old Testament. So why would God import that whole concept into the new uh, without saying, except this time, not the children? So those are some of the things. And so for me as a, you know, looking back at it now, I would say that God clearly, especially Hebrews 10, 29 through 30, prove that the new covenant is mixed, that it can be broken, that apostates exist in the new covenant. You can be in the covenant, then you can be taken out of it so much so that verse 30 says that God will judge his people. God judges his people in a New Testament context. That's that's crazy. So you can belong to God covenantally and be judged by God. So that's not good news for everybody in this covenant. Um, So it's mixed. And then 1 Corinthians 7, 14 Paul says that our children are holy. Uh, even our unbelieving spouse is holy. 
if it weren't so, then your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What does it mean for a human being to be holy other than somehow specially set apart to God in a covenantal relationship? So that's clearly he's saying that your children are somehow covenantally connected to God. Doesn't mean they're saved necessarily, but it means that they're special to God, just like the Israelites, which God said were his holy people, even when it was mostly unbelievers. Mostly, yeah. And, um, and then, again, uh, the, the third point that I always bring up is, uh, so I sort of did it out of order, but then I would bring up um, the household baptism principle that we see in the New Testament. Based on the faith of one believer, suddenly an entire household is being baptized. We don't know for sure if there were children, but we do know that a household was being identified um, and given the sign of baptism because one person was being converted. Yeah. So that's those are sort of the, the, the big points. Obviously, there's a million things we can say about I th- it. I but. think that's tremendous. I mean, especially when you go back to creation, go back to Genesis. What is the first institution God creates? It's the family. Um, yeah. And then you see all the genealogies in Scripture, you know, the the – uh, genealogies in Genesis, and then especially you started, you know, your salvation post-conversion uh, reading Matthew, it opens up with tracing the lineage, the genealogy of Christ. Generations are important, and there are just numerous yeah. generational promises throughout Old Testament and New Testament. And how is the Lord going to work that? Well, he's going to work it through families. This is what he's shown he's doing to protect that seed promised in Genesis 3 all the way to the incarnation of Christ, it's uh, it's incredible. So now you've obviously your your previous pastor, I guess, has you involved in the ministry of converting credo to pedo. Has that been largely? <laughs> <laughs> has that been a fruitful ministry for you? Um, yeah, I I I, I think it has. Um, it, it seems that um, I'll talk to somebody, and it it's an argument, a sparring match, back and forth, um, and then. Within a couple of months, not, not, not always, obviously, I'm not sure. like, claiming some yeah. kind of like, crazy gift, but they'll, they'll say that they, they completely separate from me, that they, um, you know, were convinced and now they're, they're uh, pedo Baptist and I'm, they're not giving me any of the credit, which is, is fine. But I, I do like to think that I planted, you know, shook up their thinking a little bit and, um, and planted some seeds that maybe they're not even fully aware of, which is totally fine with me. Yeah. But, but one of the, the big things that in these exchanges that one time it backfired on me, but there's this idea that um, I think that it's unavoidable that you treat your children like, like Christians. Um, so we're all pedo Baptists in practice, except for the practice of actually putting water on your children. Um, and so the clearest way to see that is through prayer. Like, do you teach your children, your unbaptized children to pray? And of course we do. We naturally do. It's unavoidable. If you didn't, you'd be kind of a weird Christian parent that, I mean, why would you not? Yeah. But, but what are you doing when you teach a child to pray? Well, we pray in Jesus name, whether or not you use the phrase in Jesus name, you are praying in his name because he's the mediator between us and God. And most of us would even teach our kids to pray in Jesus' name. But the whole point of that, the whole idea is that Jesus is standing as the mediator between us and God because we cannot approach God on our own. So if you're telling an, uh, a knowing unbeliever, you identify this person as an unbeliever, and you're telling them to lift their prayers up to God through the mediator, Jesus Christ, who you 
who you're saying does not belong to them, then you're literally encouraging them to take the Lord's name in vain if you actually believed your theology. But I think, I don't think you're doing that because I don't think you actually believe it. I think that you're, you think your children are Christians yeah. in practice in the same way a Jew would think that their child was a Jew because they were, because they're not neutral. They're not atheists. They're not pagans. A religion has been given to them by birth. Doesn't mean they're saved, but they have a religion. Yeah. Um, so they're outward Christians, members of the church, and you're dragging them to worship God every Sunday. Um, it's unavoidable. So well, but, but I, I, one time, one time I made that argument to somebody, a, a very stubborn Baptist. Um, he was just like me, like the same theology before I, I changed my mind. And <laughs> it, it hit home with him. He, he got the argument and he said, yeah, you're right. I'm going to stop telling my kids to pray. And I'm oh like, my goodness. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's not the point. Yeah. Wow. We no, went the wrong way. That's tremendous. I mean, it's a sign. You know, baptism is a sign. It doesn't point to the person. It points to the promise of the covenant in Christ. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And and that's, that, you know, just like the whole sovereignty and the issue of sin and evil, that's another big hurdle for people to, to grapple with. And I think people are well-meaning but often just lazy, and they, they don't want to have to do the hard work of following the argument through Scripture. So. That's uh, tremendous. Well, now, in addition to your ministry of converting credo to pedo, you also are uh, a, a filmmaker. You have a ministry of making films. When we were uh, talking before about the Kickstarter campaign for cessationist, I wanted to read the bio on Kickstarter because it was in your name uh, or, or on your account. Your bio says... Uh, from Kickstarter, Les Landfear is a filmmaker who has worked in a variety of areas in production and post-production on films like Transformers 3, The Smurfs, Epic, and Rock of Ages. Les is now making Christian theology documentaries, including Calvinist and Spirit and Truth. So h- how did you get into the film business? When did this happen? Is this like always been your career, I guess? No, no. I um, So I, I never went to college. Like I said, you know, drank like a college student, but didn't go. Um, and I was, I was just sort of like an artist kind of guy. I don't know. I, I, I liked art. Um, and so this weird set of circumstances happened where in Port St. Lucie, where I was living, I was just working, doing a web design job. This millionaire bought a post-production studio in, in L.A. called Digital Domain. And then he just decided there should be a branch of digital domain in Port St. Lucie, Florida, which is just makes absolutely no sense. Um, And they like negotiated all this stuff so he could have this multi-million dollar studio built on the side of uh, I-95, this uh, beautiful area. And so they gave him they gave him all this property and like all these tax credits and all this stuff. And so it just happened. He just built this. And it was also an animation studio. They were going to make like Disney animated films, not Disney, but you know, a a competitor. Uh, So, and then they just, they did what they called a job fair and they sort of threw the net out to Port St. Lucie and said, anybody who knows anything about design or Photoshop or whatever, you know, come apply, bring your video reels if you have anything. And I'd messed around with that stuff a little bit. Um, And so they just, chose 25 people from the city. I, I was one of them 
And they brought us in and they gave us a boot camp and taught us Nuke, which is this industry standard post-production um, compositing software. And I was taught how to composite movies and they put us on Transformers 3. Uh, some of the guys even got to work on Thor. They were working on the, the first uh, Thor movie when, when we first started. Um, so I worked on Transformers 3. I became a lead over a team and all this stuff and um, Smurfs. I did some other sort of compositing work on a movie called The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, which I yeah. try not to brag about too much because it's a very filthy yeah. uh, thing. But I didn't work on any of the, the filthy stuff. I actually, I was working on one of the movies there and it was, uh, they were re-releasing uh, The Last King of something. I don't know, some big movie from the 80s. And there was nude scenes. And I, I told my supervisors, like, listen, I, I'm, I'm not going to, I had a whole team under me and I told them I'm not going to work on any scenes. So my team can't take any scenes that have nudity. And I had no authority to say such a thing, but they, they like laughed at me and I was, I wasn't laughing. And they're like, Are, you're, you're serious. I'm like, listen, I, I'm a Christian. I, I just can't do it. So my team can't do it. Cause I can't be in the dailies watching, you know, their work. Uh, so that was like, uh, it was, I don't know. It was kind of cool. I had, had to stand my ground. It wow. didn't become a big deal or anything, but, um, so yeah. And then that shortly after that entire studio went bankrupt pretty quickly because they were competing with LA and the LA office hated us and they wouldn't give us any work and blah, blah, blah. And I think the entire thing went under. So we walked in one day and they just fired 200 people on the spot. And this uh. building sat there multi-million dollar studio just sat there for years un unoccupied and then christ fellowship this massive multi-million dollar mega church bought it so now it's doubly cursed <laughs> <laughs> i drive by it and i'm just so sad it was like the coolest place to work and now it's this gross mega church so, um but, you but yeah so that's how i got into it did a podcast uh shortly after that where we drank beer and talked about theology grew a pretty big audience through that and then uh, eventually I was like, let's just put this all together. Who wants to see a movie about Calvinism and people funded it. And that started my journey into making uh, Christian documentaries. So Calvinist was the first and the second is spirit and truth, yeah. which is about yeah. really reformed worship, reverential, right. true biblical worship. So um, do you have a favorite between the two of those? Was one more fun to make than the other? Or has the response to one or the other been more favorable or antagonistic? I mean, what's what's been the responses to those? Well, the excitement for Calvinist, like right off the bat, was massive. Um, like that got, you know, I, I would talk to people as I was doing the interviews and stuff, and I would say, yeah, I'm making this movie called Calvinist. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm seeing that all over Facebook. Um, so, so that was just very exciting. And I got to interview RC Sproul in the last year of his life yeah. for, uh, for Calvinist, which is one of the you know greatest, uh, moments of my life. So yeah, I think that was probably the most fun just cause it was all, all new, uh, spirit and truth was, I think it's a more important movie, but it's also not as popular, which I think totally makes sense. I think, uh, yeah, Cal Calvinist was was probably more fun of the two, but I, I think I think Spirit and Truth is 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 a, a a movie that more people need to see. Honestly, yeah, yeah. Now, don't I'm not asking you to uh, assume the gift of prophecy, but of the three that you've made, do you think that or that I mean, the two you've made and the third one that you're going to be 
starting on now cessationist do you think cessationist is going to have a longer larger impact than the other two you've made uh, or primarily i guess calvinist um well so yeah wh- one of i guess it's not really a regret but one of the uh, issues with calvinist is that i was trying to sort of capture a moment in time and uh it was about the resurgence of reform theology it does teach sort of calvinism um in a really overview kind of way but it's more about like my generation discovering it right um so there's a lot of uh t- you know we talk about Mar- i talk about mark driscoll and john piper especially driscoll though it's like you know five years from now that's going to be pretty much meaningless and I, i'm probably going to recut i really do i want to recut like a 10-year anniversary version um that that will be more of an evergreen lasting kind of okay kind of movie wow that would but, be exciting um, yeah but uh with with cessationists we right off the bat we want this to be lasting uh, we don't want it to be any kind of time capsule in in any way. We want it to be something that 50 years from now, somebody could watch. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't feel dated or anything like that. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the plan, but this is my biggest weakness. Just like peek behind the curtain. I'm very good at getting people excited for the concept of the movie. And then I think I'm okay at producing a movie. Um, but by the time that it's finished, it's like a woman giving birth. Um, like you, you want it to be over for one. And then it's like, it's such a painful experience. You never want to do it again. So by the time that I've put all this blood, sweat and work into making it as a one man show, especially uh, the release day, I'm just like, I don't care. Like whoever wants to watch this, watch it. Like I don't put any real effort into promoting it or like, you know, advertising and getting it out there. So one of the advantages I think to this one is I have two other guys. So we got three times the energy and hopefully, uh, you know, I, so as I'm working hard, I want them to be working behind the scenes, getting it ready to be released and yeah. like try to push it and make it, you know, really get it out there in a way that I just failed to do with, with my own projects. Well, I, yeah, obviously I think there is some synergy there between the three of you um, that can only be a benefit at that point where it needs to be distributed and promoted and and shared so that's exciting and i would be looking really forward to a remake not a remake but a representation of calvinist because i did i handed out copies of that tim was talking about how he used it as a kind of an evangelistic tool with people in his family well i did the same thing i had copies of it i'd give to folks um you know the goal there is always when you're dealing with your former state of being a Pelagian, you're not trying to convert them to Calvinism. You're trying to make them understand Christ and sovereignty. And, and that's the bigger picture. And it's like, once the light goes on, it stays on. You can't unsee sovereignty through scripture. Well, same thing really applies with this issue of, of the gifts and and all of that. So this is going to be, uh, this is going to be tremendous. Um, for, for the record, this, this should probably be pointed out. I was a Pelagian for about three days. That's okay. You took credit for it, so I'm gonna. <laughs> I still would have got burned at the stake if I was caught in that particular time of my life. But no, I understand. I understand. Yeah, but I think it's wonderful. We had a Pelagian, former Pelagian, producing <laughs> Calvinist. 
How, I mean, what more can you say about the providence and sovereignty of God? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, well, I will conclude with you by asking, and I think I asked you guys the other day this, and maybe you were expecting, I don't know, but what would you like me to ask you that I, I haven't asked you? Is there something you'd oh, like no, to share? Oh, no, you again. Yeah, come on, man. <laughs> I have to answer this question again. Um, <laughs> Not about the movie, just about, yeah, you just know. about anything. Well, most people that have me on, um, they are familiar with my – uh, reform podcast days. So they'll ask me like what your favorite beer is or something like that. Yeah. Well, tell us uh, I don't that. drink, I haven't been drinking lately, but my favorite style is a stout for sure. Oh, so a Guinness guy, not so much Guinness. No. I think okay. Guinness is, yeah, Guinness is a little weak, a little watery. Oh, uh, but like a, <laughs> a full body dark, just like thick. They're like molasses when you get them right. Oh, yeah, wow. Good stuff. I'll have to come visit sometime because I enjoy that. And Guinness is usually my go-to. So, um, yeah, we got some good ones. Yeah. Cool. Well, brother, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me. It's, it's exciting and it's been good to get to know you through the cessationist thing. And I hope that we'll have occasion to engage more, uh, down the road and uh, call on me if I I can ever be of service to you. Yeah, there's not much of a better compliment to be invited on someone's podcast twice in one, one month. So this is, <laughs> this is big. Thank you so much for having me. All right, brother. Good to see you. And that concludes this episode of The Bud Zone. The Bud Zone podcast is a member of the Christian podcast community where you can find scores of biblically sound podcasts for your edification and encouragement. Go to christianpodcastcommunity.org to discover more. You are now leaving the Bud Zone. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And just a reminder, no doctrines have been harmed during the recording of this show.